from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Just after the wise men left Jesus' family, it comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Listen for God's word for us today. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream... He went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight and your sight alone. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Wailing and loud lamentation is not something we usually associate with Christmas, the celebration of Jesus' birth. It seems that stories like these are more appropriate for Lent, definitely Good Friday, but Christmas? How does this fit with our joy to the world and we three kings and away in the manger in a manger and the first Noel? And with all that has happened in 2020, Lord knows we need some joy and celebration. This story, known as the Massacre of the Innocents, is recounted in yet another far darker Christmas hymn, Coventry Carol. You may have heard this before. It's about weeping for the baby boys Herod orders to have killed. Luli, Lule, thou little tiny child. Bye bye, Luli, Lule. The second and third verses continue. Herod the king in his raging charged he hath this day, his men of night in his own sight, all young children to slay. Verse 
Though this hymn recounts a scriptural event, it does not appear in our hymnal. It seems that we prefer to avoid this story until it appears in our lectionary. Perhaps it is too solemn for the Christmas season, or perhaps it touches too closely on real things in our own lives or in the life of the world. We would rather not think about these things at Christmas or any other time, really. After all, it's 2021 now. We've put 2020 behind us, right? But friends, Scripture reminds us that there is a time to dance and a time to mourn, and if there were ever a time to sing Coventry Carol, it would be for the year 2020. Back in 2017, Lutheran pastor and scholar Caroline Lewis wrote a commentary on this passage from Matthew, and she said that when we lose our innocence, we begin to become all too aware of those powers in this world that do not cherish life, but seek to destroy it. We realize how quickly the trust in those we thought had our best interest at heart turns to suspicion. The slaughter of the innocents seems to take away the innocence of Christmas. Christmas was only a week ago with all of its joy and wonder. It's too soon for that innocence to be packed up in green and red boxes, only to be brought out again in a year. Yet, this is the hard truth of this text, a truth for which we are not ready. But we are never really ready to believe in or accept innocence lost. She reviewed the year 2016 in this way. The slaughter of the innocents unique to Matthew seems an all-too-perfect pericope to summarize this past year. There was more slaughter of the innocents than we could perhaps bear. Pulse, Dallas, Philando Castile, Berlin, Brussels, Aleppo. The slaughter of the innocents list in 2020 would sound similar, yet amplified. In the U.S., among the innocents were Ahmed Arbery, George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, Breonna Taylor, Daniel Prude. In the rest of the world, we remember the innocence of Lagos and Beirut. And everyone on this planet will forever remember the innocence lost due to the coronavirus pandemic still happening right now. Caroline Lewis's 2017 reflection on this passage from Matthew rings true today in perhaps this most poignant line of her commentary. When the innocents are slaughtered, so is our innocence. This is certainly not to say that we were all perfectly sheltered from the world until 2020. It's not to say that before 2020, none of us experienced degradation of our innocence. Remember, Caroline Lewis wrote that commentary I just quoted in 2017. But I do mean to highlight 2020 as a year when, despite whatever innocence we may have already lost as individuals, most of us have lost a great deal more innocence this year than before. To add to the loss of life the pandemic and systemic racism have brought about this year, we have experienced more subtle losses of innocence as we hunkered down in our homes and limited our in-person social work and worship gatherings. 
I recently read an article in The Atlantic magazine about how the pandemic has affected us in these ways as a society. It points to the deep divides and how different races and economic classes experience both the pandemic of today and the one in 1914, reminding us that losing milestones is something that people of color and economically disadvantaged people have always known. Another op-ed published early in the pandemic put it, we are all in the same storm, but not in the same kind of boat. Still, the Atlantic article, article acknowledges that the pandemic of 2020 has brought loss for everyone, as different as those losses might be. The writers cited in the article illustrated our losses like this. Symphonies are written, buildings built, children conceived in the present, but always with a future in mind. But the uncertainty of the pandemic has robbed people of that reference point for their daily activities. They refer to this condition as horizonlessness, arguing that it fundamentally disrupts how we weigh the value of what we are doing right now and leaves us feeling rudderless. This horizonlessness is perhaps embodied most fully in the endless time we have spent in front of screens this year, looking no more than a couple of feet ahead of us most of the day. And a sense of futility can rise up from this horizonlessness because from moment to moment, it has become more and more difficult to work today with a future in mind. The loss of innocence we have experienced as individuals, as a society, and as a world has robbed us of these familiar horizons that we rely upon to guide our path, like weddings, funerals, baby showers, graduations, and job prospects that mark the next step of our life and our vocation in God's mission for the world. Caroline Lewis tells us that that is usually how innocence is lost, when the joy of life is overshadowed by that which or who seeks to take life, when the hope in life is usurped by events and circumstances that pull the rug out from under us. This horizonlessness, this innocence lost, has stymied our orientation toward the future. But, oh, friends, Jesus, our brother, knows all too well what it means to have innocence taken away. Jesus' story of lost innocence begins with these characters our scriptures call the wise men. The Bible doesn't say how many there are, but they came bearing three gifts. And they arrived in Jerusalem and asked people throughout the city, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. It is because they came asking this question that Herod became aware of Jesus' birth, as well as his status as the new king. So I wouldn't exactly personally call the Magi wise. Hearing that the Magi are in town looking for the king of the Jews, Herod asked the chief priests and scribes to confirm where the Messiah had been born, and they quote to him the prophet Micah, who said that the birth was to occur in Bethlehem. Then he called the wise men to a secret meeting in which he had them explain exactly at what time the star appeared that guided them. It is because of this information they shared with Herod that Herod was not only aware of the divine birth, but he knew when Jesus was born 
and in what town. Either the Magi are extremely naive or their innocence has been so stripped away that they possibly come with some sort of hints on behalf of their own rulers to establish some sort of diplomatic ties with Herod. Either way, the future orientation of Herod and the Magi was not quite in lockstep with the future orientation of the faithful followers in the rest of the Christmas story. Whatever their intent, the wise men's visit to Herod caused the massacre of the innocents we encounter in Matthew's Gospel today. But when they saw Jesus and offered him their gifts, the men became truly wise. They reoriented their future by returning home another way. They avoided Herod and did not fulfill their word to him that they would return to tell the exact location of Jesus. At the word of the messenger in their lives, the wise men changed their future orientation, literally repenting, turning around to go in a different direction. Despite the repentance of the wise men, the massacre of the innocents had been set in motion. Joseph received the message in a dream to escape to Egypt with Mary and Jesus. And I don't know any more than you do how, where, or how Mary and Joseph intended to raise Jesus. I don't know if they intended to stay in Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem or if they counted on raising him in Nazareth, but either way, they most definitely didn't expect to have to raise their child in Egypt. After all, their people had been enslaved in Egypt, brutalized by the Egyptians. And yet when Herod unleashed the fury of his rule, Egypt became Jesus, Mary, and Joseph's country of refuge. Talk about a reconfiguration of horizon and a reorientation of the future they had envisioned. And Matthew recounts nothing about their journey or their life in Egypt. Before we know it in the scripture, the Holy Family was on the move again. After Herod died, Joseph had yet another dream, this time telling him to take the family back to Israel. But after hearing that Herod's son had taken power, Joseph had another dream in which he received the message to go to Nazareth, instead, once again, to spare Jesus' life. Twice again, the Holy Family had to reorient their future, looking to not yet another endless horizon, followed by yet another endless horizon. Even for those who did not envision a future nearly as extravagant or as far-reaching as we would in the 21st century United States, we can be sure that reorienting a future for them meant physical and emotional upheaval, loss of belongings and a sense of belonging, loss of certainty and horizonlessness. And this happened to the family four times in the Christmas story. We have no idea what happened to the Holy Family after they arrived in Egypt. We can speculate that they had to learn a new language, that their religion was in the minority. It is likely that they needed help finding a place to live, navigating the market, figuring out where everything was in their new town. Caroline Lewis sums it up this way. When Mary and Joseph end up in Egypt, they had to question where the innocents went. Migration in Jesus' day was nothing like it is now. The 
The empires largely determined what constituted a city or territory and who had control of the ins and outs of people moving from place to place. Legal and illegal migration today have little similarity to the circumstances of migration in the first century. Although one could be born a Roman citizen, that privilege was not available to the Holy Family since they were in Judea. But regardless of how different the circumstances of migration were in Jesus' day, our modern-day United Nations definition of a refugee could easily apply to the Holy Family. By that definition, a refugee is someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. Jesus and his family experienced the most extreme form of persecution, threat of death. Their religion and nationality made them a threat to Herod. They were unable and unwilling to return to their home until Herod had died, and even when they did, it was still dangerous for them. Indeed, we can say with confidence that Jesus, our Lord and our brother, and his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, were refugees. Those fitting that criteria of persecution today are admitted to the United Nations Refugee Program which provides some form of temporary housing in a tent or a camp or somewhere in an apartment. And then for 1% of refugees worldwide, only 1%, they have the opportunity to resettle permanently in their final country of residence. Those who are stuck in the camps exist with sort of a horizonless future not knowing if they will be able to return home safely, not knowing what or if they will be able to do for work. I served in full-time refugee ministry for five years back in Tennessee, and when I first started working in that ministry, I was working with people who were past their initial eight-month resettlement period, and they were seeking an improvement in their employment situation. And later on, I did more work with refugee congregations and had the privilege to get to know particular groups from different countries and their cultures and their ways of being in the United States. See, refugees, when they have been identified in coordination with the State Department and NGOs, go through extensive background checks that last three to five years, sometimes longer, and then they come to the United States, and all of a sudden, a new horizon opens to them. Their new future has been reoriented in such a dramatic way, in a place that they may not have ever even heard of, and they come with one suitcase per person, and they come with debt because they have to pay back all of the money that they had been afforded for their plane tickets within a couple of years of arrival. A new kind of horizon is before them with all of this baggage of the past at the same time. And yet, the resilience and courage and strength of these people propels them forward with an oriented future towards the good future they know is in store for them. I had the privilege of walking alongside a family for their entire five years, from the time that they arrived until 
shortly before they became citizens. The mother in this family, who worked as a registered nurse back home in Myanmar, approached me after a couple of years and asked if it was possible for her to become a nurse again in the United States. Completely unfamiliar with how professional recertification works, I dove into this strange, complicated system of international transcript requests, very specific degree evaluation requirements, and a whole web of processes and costs that overwhelmed my sense of horizon for this eager and professional woman. Even though she had a copy of her transcript from nursing school, it was not an original, which the US degree evaluators required. And the nursing school she attended was not internationally recognized, meaning the expense she would incur in the process of obtaining all of her original education documents and then having them evaluated would be futile in the end. We tried, but what seemed like a new horizon for her career seemed to empty out once again. But she did not give up. An intern working with me accompanied her to the local community college where she discussed with a career counselor the possibilities for a change in direction. After a couple of years of college preparatory ESL classes at the community college, the woman would qualify for a vocational training program. And the counselor recommended that with her healthcare experience, surgical technology would be a great option for her. And so her new journey, reoriented into a new kind of medical career, began. The woman met with the intern several times a week while taking several uh, ESL academic classes, poring over grammatical exercises and readings. They practiced advanced conversation. They went over new vocabulary. And then they cried together when the woman's parents died within months of each other and read a book about grief so that she could learn language to express in English what she was going through. Just beyond that once empty horizon, God was preparing something new for her. She just had to reorient her future to point it in the direction of God's new calling. And so in the spring, a few years later, she graduated from the first level of the surgical technology program, but she didn't stop there. After I left Nashville, she prepared for and passed her certification exam, which qualified her for a higher level job which she then got at a major local hospital system. This will likely prevent generational poverty for her family and allow even more horizons than they imagined before. That woman had to reorient her future just about as many times as the Holy Family did in just about the same amount of time. She knew that the Lord knew her journey, and she fixed her sight constantly on the good future she knew that God had prepared for her. She stepped out in courage and in faith, knowing that whatever small decisions she made, whatever small steps she took in the present, would lead her to the good future God had imagined for her. Her future orientation was toward God. Regardless of how many times she had to reorient her path in the moment, her faith, her future orientation gave her a horizon toward which to fix her gaze. Friends, there is absolutely no reason to look down on refugees because they walked in the footsteps of Jesus himself, he who taught us to welcome the stranger among us as we would welcome him. 
And this woman welcomed me into her life equally as much. And this is a ministry this congregation has, has historically engaged in alongside refugees in Clarkston, welcoming them at the airport, furnishing their apartments, helping them learn English and find sustainable employment. Some of these relationships between our congregation members and the resettled refugees in Clarkston have continued long past their resettlement period. But in the past four years or so, the U.S. has resettled but a trickle of refugee families, gutting the resettlement service area and infrastructure and leaving us with few opportunities to work towards the goal that God had set for us to welcome five families a year. For some time, that ministry has seemed a little horizonless. But now we are working to bring this ministry to vitality once again. We are having to reorient, having to shift our focus from newly resettled refugees to perhaps those who have been here a while now, those who may be citizens of the United States. And yes, we will likely have to reorient the future of this ministry in light of the ongoing pandemic. This month, we will be looking toward the horizon to see how God is reorienting this ministry. In a season of constant change and uncertainty, in a season of horizonlessness, some may wonder why we continue to look toward future ministry endeavors such as this one and others. We do this because like the folks in the Bible, we step out in faith. Every time there was a dream, every time a messenger appeared that told these faithful people in the Christmas story to get up and go, they did just that. But even though they were responding to immediate matters, each immediate action they took was working for and building toward the good future promised to them, even without yet knowing exactly what that future might be. Christianity is inherently a future-oriented faith. Faith because we don't know exactly what the future will look like, but future-oriented because we trust that the future God offers us will indeed be good. As the director of Global Mission here at First Pres, I can tell you that change is the only certain thing about the way we must now look at our ministry Occasionally these days, this and other ministries of the church seem horizonless. But the idea that God's mission does not stop just because we are not traveling, with the idea that each step we take right now is building towards something new, that we don't quite know the end of yet, that is faith. In any of our endeavors today, discerning the future of our ministry together or engaging in other small, daily, momentary acts, stepping out without knowing how the end will take shape, but knowing that each step we take and the hope promised to us, we can walk with certainty toward a good future. We know God has in store for us, just as the refugees of today do, just as the people in the Christmas story did, just as Jesus and the Holy Family did. May it be so. Amen. Amen.